If you would, bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to look at Acts 10 together this morning. But let's pray first. Lord, we thank you uh, for this beautiful day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people and to sing your praises, to encourage one another, uh, to remind each other uh, of the great God that we serve. And so I just pray this morning that as we gather in this place together and as we open your word, that you would teach us, that you would lead us, that you would guide us. Uh, We pray that you would illuminate our hearts and our minds, that you would uh, soften the hardness of our hearts to receive uh, your eternal life-giving word, that you would show us what you would have for us today. I pray that as we look uh, at the ways that you're moving and what you're doing and the way that you've brought the fulfillment of your plan for us in Jesus and what it means for us, that we would just see afresh uh, how great a God we serve, how big you are, uh, how great is your love for us, and that we would leave here uh, being greatly encouraged because of who you are and that we are yours. Uh, we thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Uh, Friday, I was uh, across the street here at the gas station, right across the street, and I stopped to get gas. And I ran into uh, a gentleman named uh, Sean Tomlin. Some of you guys know Sean. He graduated from the Jericho House about five years ago, and I hadn't seen Sean in a couple years. And this guy was waving, and I was on the phone at first, and I thought, I, he looks familiar. And I walked over, and it was Sean, and we started to talk. And so Sean uh, just greatly blessed me Friday to see him, uh, his beaming face and how God is using him. Uh, he's married, has a, a son now, is doing great, has a great job following the Lord. And just uh, as I was talking to Sean, one of the things that stuck out with me is he had one of the most incredible testimonies of anybody I've ever heard. And uh, as we were talking about a mutual friend that now works with bees, Sean's testimony actually has some stuff to do with bees that helped keep him alive at one point in his life, which is hard to even fathom until you know his story. But Sean was uh, an addict that was struggling with addiction in all these different ways. He had a horrible car crash, crashed off into a ditch and landed in a great big hive of bees. Um, He was in critical condition and he was stung so many times by the bees that later on when the paramedics got him to the hospital and they fixed him up and they did all this stuff, they told him you would have been dead had it not been for those bees stinging you over and over again. That the adrenaline from you getting stung over and over literally kept you alive. And so Sean tells this testimony that is just incredible of the way that God graciously kept him alive by bees stinging him in a ditch. And so just seeing him the other day and seeing the way God uh, just continues to pursue him and he's walking out his faith and he's just beaming, happy, seeing what God's doing. It was just a great reminder of how great our God is, how big he is, that, that even in our running from him and even in the midst of our sin and even in a brutal car crash and all this stuff that he can control the bees to keep his uh, beloved son alive until he would redeem him. And so just a beautiful picture of what God was doing. And I was reminded of that as I talked to Sean the other day. But it also just dovetails right into what we're going to talk about today in Acts chapter 10. Because what I want us to see in Acts chapter 10, and this is going to be kind of the heading over everything we're going to talk about today, is God is going to explode the limitations that the church is putting on him at this time. If you've been with us, we've been following our way through Acts and what we've been seeing in Acts is the spread of the gospel and the early church going out and it's growing and people are coming to faith. 
But God's going to show them in this chapter that he's working in greater ways, that he's much bigger even in the boxes that they're trying to put him in. He's going to expand the vision of what he's doing right here in Acts chapter 10. And this section falls right in a section of Acts where the gospel is going out and it's crossing new thresholds and it's going to new people. And we've said this, if you've been with us, that's the outline of Acts. God gives uh, the great commission to go out to make disciples of all nations to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And that's the outline that Acts follows. It's showing you how the gospel is crossing those thresholds and it's going out. We saw just a couple of weeks ago that it goes uh, to Samaria. And then we see Philip talking to an Ethiopian eunuch. We see it going out in these ways. We get to chapter 10 here. And now we're going to be introduced to this man named Cornelius, who is a Roman centurion. And God is drawing people into his family of faith and he's crossing these boundaries. And in the process, he's exploding the limitations that we put on him. And it made me think as I was thinking about this this week, that how often we try to do that. We try to put God in a little box that he works like this and it looks this way. And we build this little box and our system around it. And this is what God does. And then he blows that up and he does it over and over and over again. And so there's a quote in your bulletin this morning from Charles Spurgeon that made me think of the way uh, this idea of the way God explodes the limitations we put on him. Spurgeon would use this uh, analogy or this this picture he paints here over and over in his preaching. Oftentimes he would put it to the word of God. Sometimes he put it to the gospel and sometimes he just put it to God himself. But he'd talk about God being a lion And he'd say, see that lion, they've caged him for his preservation. They've shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how many a band of armed men have gathered to protect the lion, how they clatter, make with their swords and their spears. These mighty men are intent on defending a lion. And then Spurgeon would say, oh, fools and slow of heart, open that door and let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. And what Spurgeon was saying is so often we try to protect God. And I'm going to explain them and I'm going to tell and I'm going to uh, make apology for it. And I'm going to try to do all these things. And what Spurgeon would just say over and over is get out of the way and let God do what God's going to do. And that's what you see in Acts chapter 10. God's exploding these categories as the gospel goes out. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And I would just say to you and, and to me and my own heart, to all of us, that we need to be reminded of this. We need to be regularly reminded that we cannot limit God. Try as we might, try to cage him or put him in a box or this is the way he works and he will continue to explode past our expectations and the limits that we want to put on him. And so I want to encourage you in that because right here in this passage, it's in the context of evangelism. It's in the context of making disciples and seeing people come to faith. And I want to encourage you in that. And we're going to talk about that. Because that is the context that we see in Acts. But I also want to encourage you that you can't limit God and he's far greater than you can imagine in your anxiety and in your worry, in your frustration, in your anger, in your sorrow, in your disappointment, in your depression. God is far bigger than you want to limit him to be in all those areas. 
And so see what God is doing in this text and the way he's exploding the ways they thought he could work. And he goes, no, 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 I'm much bigger than that. And we need to be reminded of that. And so this morning, as we look at Acts chapter 10, I want us to look first at how God is expanding their understanding. And primarily, we're going to see that with Peter. And remember, this is Peter who was with Jesus every day for three years, who God is using as the head of the church. He's moving in miraculous ways. We're seeing all these things, but God's still growing Peter because he's still trying to limit what God can do. And so we're going to look at how is he expanding that understanding, expanding. Secondly, what is the way that he is working that's so much bigger? And we're going to see that here. And then lastly, when we get a glimpse of that, what does that mean for us as we think about both of those things this morning? So let's just start with how he's expanding their understanding. And so there's a lot of things going on in the background of this text that are helpful to us to understand the fullness of what God is showing. Part of that we get hints at at different times. Like Mike read this whole chapter to us just a second. You get down to verse 45 and it says when they see what God was doing and, and it says uh, when they see the believers from among the circumcised who'd come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. That's a huge statement that says a whole lot. Right? They weren't sure how this worked and who came to faith and how. And there's all this baggage they're carrying with them and the way that they saw things. And God's about to explode a whole lot of it here in this chapter. And so if you go back to the beginning, it introduces us in verse one to a man named Cornelius. And it tells us he was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. He's what we'd call a God fearer. He is not a Christian. He has not heard the fullness of the gospel yet, but he believes there's a God and he's seeking him and he's praying and he's asking questions. But the things that I want to put a light on is the fact that he is a Roman centurion for just a moment. If you know anything about the time in which the church was growing out in Acts here, Acts chapter 10, we're around A.D. 37. So about seven years after Jesus' resurrection, the ascension, the gospels going out, we're right around that time period. Church still in its infancy. But what we need to know is that Rome was the superpower that was in charge of the known world at the time. Uh, we sit right in the middle of a time that was known as the Pax Romana. And what we mean by that and what they talk about when they talk about that period is it dates from about 30 B.C. to about 170 A.D. That basically there was some, uh, for the most part, peace under the Roman Empire. They had conquered a great portion of the world and they weren't actively seeking to make their kingdom go out, but they were just kind of holding steady. And so uh, relatively there was peace in the land. And they've done a lot of great things for civilization and all this stuff. And it sounds like a really great thing when you hear that. 200 years of peace. And they were doing this and they were working in this way. And it was great. And you go, oh, yeah, okay, that sounds wonderful. But what we can forget or, or maybe you weren't aware of with Rome is the reason that there was relative peace at the time is because they had brutally killed anyone who dared question what they were doing. There was peace because anyone who possibly would question Rome was brutally killed at the moment they did so. And so there's peace because there's no one that would ever say anything against them. 
And so the way they operated is if you spoke against Rome or you posed a threat, they would take you outside the city and they would put you on a cross and they would crucify you very publicly to make you an example. This is what happens when you mess with Rome. This is what happens when you mess with the gospel of Rome. And yes, they used that word. The good news of the kingdom of Rome. Don't you dare mess with Rome and its kingdom and its God, Caesar. That's the language they used, which helps us to understand the language that was used by the early church about the gospel and who God is and what that looks like and how those things are in conflict. It also helps us to understand why Jesus was very publicly executed outside the city limits. He spoke of being a king and having a kingdom and that no one came to the father except through him and all these things that they saw as a threat. So they killed him. And so that is the world that we're living in at this time in the early church. And so we are introduced to this guy, Cornelius, who is a centurion. A centurion was someone who was over at least 100 soldiers, right? a commander in the Roman army. Most scholars believe when it talks about the Italian cohort here in verse one, that a cohort was six groups of centurions or 600 soldiers. And then often it had to do with a, a very elite group. And so some have hypothesized there's some there's some uh, evidence for this, but uh, they've they've come to this thought that maybe it was an elite group of archers, kind of special forces in the Roman army. And that's who Cornelius was. And so I want you to think about when we're introduced to him and what's going on here. If you're Peter and John or, or any of the people in the early church and this is the way Rome functions. And if you cross them, you get killed. You're paying 90 percent of your income to Rome. Uh, if you pass a Roman soldier, he can hand you his pack and say you've got to carry it for a mile. And you have to say, yes, sir, or you can be killed for that. If that's. What you're under and what you're around, are you real excited about going and pursuing somebody like Cornelius with the gospel? I'm not saying they didn't believe the gospel could change Cornelius's heart. I'm not saying they didn't believe it was for someone like Cornelius. But you can kind of understand, even like what we saw a couple chapters ago with the gospel going into Samaria, why maybe it wasn't fully taking off with the Roman soldiers at the time. There's probably some very realistic fear that is part of that. Dealing with these people that are over you in this heavy hand ruling over you that you don't dare cross. And so what it tells us here is that God is speaking to this guy, Cornelius. He's pursuing the Roman centurion. He's revealing of who he is and what he's like. And he gives us this vision and he says, there's a guy down the road in Joppa named Peter and I want you to go find him. Now, Cornelius is in Caesarea, which was a Roman outpost, and that's where it makes sense that he's stationed there. Joppa's about 30 miles away down the coast. And so as we're introduced to God pursuing this guy, Cornelius, we then shift and Luke shows us what's going on with Peter. He's down the road and these guys are coming to find him. It says Cornelius sends some of his best guys and they say, go find him and see if he'll come here to meet with me. And so in the meantime, God is preparing Peter, and that picks up in verse nine. And so the next day, as they were on their journey, talking about the men that Cornelius sent, and they're approaching the city. Peter went up to the housetop at the sixth hour to pray. 
And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And the voice came to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have not eaten anything that is common or unclean. I love that Peter's still correcting God. Same thing he did with Jesus all the time. Right. I'm going to die. And he's like, no, you're not. Right. God says, it's okay, Peter, eat this. No, I don't do that. Right. And so the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times and then it was taken up at once to heaven. That's just encouraging to me. Right. That God had to show Peter three times. Right. He does it. No, I'm not doing that. Okay, we're starting again. Here comes the sheet. (laughs) And he tells him over and over three times. He tells him to do this. And finally, it's like Peter's like he's he's conflicted. And we're going to talk about why in just a second. He calls it unclean. And there's a lot of baggage he's carrying as to why he's not going to eat what God's showing him there. And so verse 17, now Peter was inwardly perplexed as to the vision that he had seen and what it might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And so I want you to think about what God's doing here, the way he's exploding the box that they're seeking to work in. God's preparing Peter's heart for these guys to show up. And I think part of that is just a practical consideration that that'd be kind of scary if all of a sudden some Roman soldiers are at your door and they're knocking on the door and they go, we want you to come with us to our commander, Cornelius, who's who's one of these centurions that's over a lot of men and he wants to meet with you. That'd be kind of scary. And so God prepares Peter's heart and he says, I want you to go with him and I want you to go without hesitation. So as he's pondering right before the knock comes, God says, it's okay, go with him. And so God is working to expand Peter's understanding. And part of it is just the fact that they're Roman soldiers, but there's a whole nother layer here. As to what Peter is going to object to or why he wouldn't have maybe gone with them. And you see it when Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have not eaten anything that is common or unclean as he sees this vision. And Peter's alluding to something that as a Jew, he would have known and lived his entire life. In fact, he does go with them. And as he gets there, one of the first things he says to him in verse 28, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. What is he talking about? He says it's unlawful. And then he says before he's never eaten anything that's common or unclean. And he says, this is I can't do this. And he tells them as he goes, he says, you know, as well as I do, this normally doesn't work. This is unlawful. So what's he talking about? Why does God go to the links to show him this vision and the sheet and these animals on it? And telling him to kill it. What in the world is happening here? And what is going on? The other layer that God's starting to explode and expand their understanding of is that they believed in these purity laws, these cleanliness laws that God had given them as Israelites in the Old Testament. As Jews that God had given to Moses. And we see that in the law, the first five books of the Bible. 
He gives them these instructions on the way the Israelites, God's chosen people, that he was going to set up in the middle of the known world to show what God was like. And he gave them all these ways to function. And you see at the beginning of chapter 11 how ingrained this is. See, 11, 1 to 18 is Peter retelling this story again. If you've been in our how to study the Bible class, what that means is that this is important. It's so important that he tells the whole story and then he gets to the end and then he tells the whole story again. Because he wants to make sure Luke wants to make sure his readers that are reading this see how incredibly important this is. And so he records Peter retelling what happens. And so the beginning of chapter 11 says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And so Peter went up to Jerusalem. The circumcised party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And so there's, there's the level of they're just scary because they're Romans and they can kill you. But then there's this level that they're unclean as far as his understanding of the law. And what that means is when God gave them the law and he gave them the temple and he gave them the way in which they were to function and work as a nation to show the world what God was like. He gave them all these rules and we need to make sure we put that in the proper understanding. God did this with Israel so that as he placed them in the center of the world and people watching, they would be a light teaching the world what a holy God looks like. And how sinful we are and the way that we need to approach a God like that. And so God set up a temple and he set up a sacrificial system and he set up the ways in which we approach him to begin to teach and to show that we as sinful, broken people cannot just haphazardly walk right up to a holy, righteous, perfect God. And so he gave the the nation of Israel, some civil laws that they were to hold to as God was their leader. He was the king. He was over their nation. They were to function this way. And then he gave them ways in which they were to worship. And with that came these cleanliness laws and the ways that they were to approach worship, which meant you couldn't handle and touch certain animals. You couldn't handle and touch certain things. You couldn't wear certain clothing. You couldn't do certain things that God had clearly told them to do. And the reason that he was showing them this is to show how serious it was to to approach a holy, righteous God. And so you read through Leviticus and you get this holiness code and you can't eat pork. Uh, You can't eat shellfish. You can't uh, wear two types of clothing. You can't do all these different things that the world around them did that God said, you're going to be different and set apart because you're my people. And so they did. And they begin to take on those things. But along the way, what happened with Israel is they kind of got lost in what they were doing with it. Instead of it being a light to show something different, to magnify who God is, it became a way for them to be superior. It became a way for them to look down on other people. It became a way to separate themselves, not to point to the holiness of God, but to build themselves up and say, look at us, we're different than everybody else. And so over time, that became the way that they operated. And so Jesus would come and he would start to explode their understandings on a lot of these things. These places that they would added to the law, the law didn't say you couldn't have a meal with someone who was not Jewish, but they kind of 
surmise that from, well, those people are unclean and they're not doing the things that God's told us to do and they're touching unclean things. So if we go into their house, they surmise, well, everything's going to be unclean in there and then we're going to get mixed in with it. So let's just avoid that altogether. And so that's what began to happen. But then Jesus comes along and what do we see him doing? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. And he spends time with them and he goes to them and he shows them and he begins to explode these limitations. But even now, that is so ingrained that Peter's having a hard time with it. And I don't want to beat up on Peter because that was God's chosen way for the Israelites to function for a long, long, long time. Remember, we're only six, seven years into the church. The temple is still functioning. It's still there. Sacrifices are still going on. They're still trying to come to grips with how do we live as Christians who are putting our faith in Jesus, but we still have all these things that God seemed to have told us to do. How do those go together? And so here God is showing them how they go together. And he gives this vision to Peter and the the sheet comes down and he says, take and kill and eat. And he shows them all these animals that would have normally made him unclean. Which is why Peter goes, no, can't do that. And we pick on Peter and we say he's correcting the Lord, but I would have been Peter. I would have been like, hey, chapter and verse, Leviticus says, God, I can't do that. Right. And I think that's what he was doing. He was trying to be faithful. And God's going, no, 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 I've done something here. And he tells Peter, he says, what I don't call what I have made clean, unclean. What's he talking about? The fulfillment of everything we see in the Old Testament is pointing us ahead to the finished work of Jesus. The cleanliness laws were to show that a sinful, broken people cannot walk straight up to a holy, righteous God. And then Jesus comes and he takes our sin upon himself and he makes us clean. We're not made clean by not touching certain animals. We're not clean by not eating certain things. We're made clean by putting our faith completely and totally in the only righteous one, Jesus. And so he's beginning to teach Peter in the early church that it doesn't work this way anymore. The cleanliness laws that you're holding to are now obsolete because you're made clean in Jesus and nothing else. He's exploding the limitations they're seeking to put on the way God works. That's why he's preparing them. That's why he shows them this vision. That's why as they're knocking on the door, he goes, it's okay to go there and to go without hesitation. Right? Because what would a good Jew have done before? They knock on the door. They say, come to our house. Come share a meal with us. And Cornelius and a bunch of Roman centurions can't do that. It's unclean. God goes, no, 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 no. You're made clean in me. What you touch doesn't make you unclean. What Jesus has made clean by his sacrifice, touching and tasting can't make you unclean because it's all Christ. And so he's beginning to show and to teach and to bring a fuller understanding to what's happening. Now, this is really important. And please hear me on this. And if you don't understand exactly what I'm talking about, let's have this conversation together. I hear this a lot as an objection to the Bible. People say that Christians leave out huge portions of the Bible and it doesn't make sense and we're inconsistent. That we ignore the cleanliness laws of Leviticus. I see people use this all the time as attack on Christianity. Well, you don't believe your own Bible. Because it says if a couple has adultery, you should take them out and you should stone them. And you know adulterers and you're not stoning them. So you're not holding to the Bible. 
Or the Bible says that you shouldn't wear two different types of uh, cloth in your clothing. And right now you have on two different types. See, you're a hypocrite. Or it says, don't eat pork or don't eat shellfish. And I just saw you at the barbecue place. Right? And we go, well, that does. And it makes you think, okay, well, how should I take those? Here's how you should take those. The cleanliness laws were to point ahead. To show you that God is holy and righteous and we are sinful and broken. But when Jesus comes, he becomes the way we are clean and he makes those laws obsolete. We're not leaving them out. We're seeing that Jesus has completely and totally fulfilled them. And so it's not inconsistent. When people say that, they're not reading the Bible in the wholeness and light of the whole story and the way it works. The same is true for the civil law when they would stone people or put someone to death. That was at a specific time in a specific place for this reason. God was their king over them to show what it looked like to be a holy, righteous people. God's not over one nation in that way anymore. God is showing what he's like through his church. And so that is now obsolete. And it's not because God has changed. It's not because he's inconsistent. It's because he's brought the fulfillment of all of it completely in Jesus. And so I say that as being important because that's what people say all the time and they get hung up on the Bible right there. And what I see is Christians will even say, well, we don't really believe the Old Testament. We believe the New Testament. I go, oh, it's not true. We believe that the Old Testament points to the New Testament in Jesus and it all perfectly goes together. It's not that God was this way in the Old Testament and this way in the New Testament. He was always holy and righteous, but now he's made a way through Jesus that we can come to him. Do you see the difference? And we as believers need to be able to answer that. And so that's why I say if you're not sure what I'm talking about and you're not sure how that connection makes Let's have that conversation because that's part of our job to equip you to be able to answer that because there is an answer for it. I got way off, but that's an important point that we need to hit on. Right. And so what we see here is God is stretching them. He's showing them. He's showing Peter that I'm working in this way now. And I love the way he does it. He says, you're going to go with them. And Peter's like, I don't understand. That's the way God often does. He leads us and he equips us for it. And then he asks us to respond in obedience. And then he meets us in that. And so Peter does. And he responds in obedience. And he begins to go with these men. And he goes into this place. And he begins to preach the gospel. He shows up and they tell him about the vision that they have. And he says, I saw this. And here you are. And now what? And Peter goes, so glad. And he tells them the gospel. Starting in verse 34, he starts to unfold. He says, God has shown that there's no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then he goes into the heart of the gospel and he begins to say, it's all Jesus. And look at what he's done. And he says, yes, you're right to fear God. And yes, you're right to give alms. And yes, you're right to pray and to seek him. But here's the fulfillment of all of it. And he points them to Jesus. Verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness to everyone who believes in him, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter lays out the gospel for a Roman centurion and his family. 
He says, you can be made clean in the same way that I am made clean. You can have your sins forgiven in the same way because it's all Jesus. And it's just for you as it is for me. And it doesn't matter that you've grown up in a completely different background than I have. God is willing to save you. And he says, all the prophets and all the Old Testament and all of it point ahead to what Jesus has done. And you get to the end that says they asked him to stay with them for some days. And I can't help but imagine that as he stayed with them, that he just began to show them that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. He's the fulfillment of everything that God was doing before, that he is the temple. You don't need the temple now. Jesus is the temple. He's the way that you approach God. He's the sacrifice that atones for your sins. He's the high priest who intercedes on your behalf. He's the spotless lamb who is without sin that sheds his blood on your behalf. And so now instead of these types and shadows and cleanliness laws and uncleanliness laws, Peter's beginning to see that it's all Jesus. And we're all saved the same way in Christ. And he's now remaking us. And so Peter comes in and he has table fellowship with a house full of Romans. A Roman centurion and his family. And he can sit and he can eat and he can enjoy this fellowship and they can be united in who they are in Christ. And there's this incredible thing that now happens. Right? The, the temple is no longer a mount in Israel that only certain people can come all the way in and all these rules and all these regulations. But the very presence of God now dwells in people. Those barriers have been broken down. And so when Peter preaches and they hear the good news, it says, verse 44, while he was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Everything they thought they knew just gets exploded in front of them. The Holy Spirit falls in fullness on these people and they were hearing it says for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. I mentioned it just a second ago, but it's important to, to remember Luke's going to then repeat this whole story at the beginning of chapter 11. Because the early church so needed to hear this. They needed to understand that it's all Jesus. That it's all through what Christ has done. That he is the fulfillment of all things. And the gospel is for all people. And the Holy Spirit is coming in fullness in all people. And so when we start to think about how much bigger God is working than they ever imagined. The gospel is for all people. But instead of the temple being in one place with God's presence there, that now the presence of God is in these people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation going to the corner of the earth, proclaiming who Jesus is. Do you see the difference? Largely, we look at the Old Testament as God set them up in this place and it was kind of a come and see what God is like as you observed what they were doing. But now in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit falls and it's not come and see, it's go and tell. And it's going into the corners of the earth in all these places and all these different ways. And it's no longer centralized in this one thing. It goes out in all these ways. And so the way God is working is far greater than they ever imagined. And so I want you just to think with me for a second. If we embrace the fullness of what God's saying, the unity that we have with all people, 
the things that are true here if the church goes out in that way. And I say this all the time. I said it last week and I say it again. This is why we say you are the church. You don't go to church. You are the church. You don't come into this building to meet God, although we come together together to worship him and hear his word and take communion, do the things that we're commanded to do. But you don't meet God in this place like he's not out there. And so when you understand the fullness of this, I want you to understand this, that there is no place that God is not at work. The whole idea that this is the secular place and this is uh, the sacred place. That, That God's working here, but not over here. This blows that apart. God's at work in all those places. No place is beyond his reach. There is no partiality. The gospel is to be proclaimed for all people in all places at all times, everywhere you go. It's far bigger and far greater than any limitations we try to put on it. And so sometimes they say, "Uh, I'm going to go get alone and, and have time with God. It's all time with God. It's not like, okay, God, I'm going to come over here and meet you and we'll meet over here. He's with you. He's indwelling you in the presence of his spirit and all things. And so everything you do, God is at work. And so beginning to see how big he is and beginning to listen to him in all things that we're doing. Second thing I want you to consider is that God is at work calling people to himself and he's inviting us to be part of it. I love the story of Cornelius. What was Peter's part in this? They literally showed up and knocked on the door and said, would you come please meet with Cornelius? Okay, I'll go. But God was working on Cornelius before. He was softening his heart. He was showing him. He was leading him. He was walking with him, all this. And then Peter was just obedient to proclaim what God was doing. It's no different today. God's at work in people all around you. And he's revealing himself and he's showing them and he's drawing them to himself. And he's at work in all these ways. And we're called to just be obedient to step in and proclaim in who God is. And so when we think about how big he is, I remember having a friend uh, who had a daughter that was really sick. And he wasn't a believer and God laid him on my heart and he did all these He did all these things over and over to have me literally run into this guy in the middle of his need. And it was so clear. God just made all these doors open and all these things. And then uh, through years of spending time with him and his wife and his family, I'm still not sure where that guy is. But I remember reading a page for his daughter as she was sick. Comments that people had written. And what I saw is that my friend was surrounded by believers. That there were people preaching the gospel to him every day and encouraging him and reminding him. And all of a sudden it was like God so clearly said, you're not alone in this. In fact, this work of drawing him to me is not your job. You're just to be obedient in the opportunities I give you. That's exactly what's happening here. God's drawing Cornelius to himself. He's doing this work. And then he calls Peter just to be faithful. That's the same for each one of us. And so I want to ask, as you think about your own life, who's the Cornelius in your life? 
Who is God put right in front of you that he's drawing to himself and he's calling you just to be obedient? Just to be faithful, to walk alongside and speak the truth and point to Jesus. And so if you can think of who that is, or maybe it's a couple people or hopefully it's, it's a lot of people. Would you ask God what the next steps are and what that looks like? Maybe you sit here today and I say, who's your Cornelius and what that looks like? I don't know. I'm not sure. And so my question to you would be, would you ask God to show you who it is? Who is God placing in your life right now that he's drawing to himself and he wants you to be part of what he's doing? Would you just begin to say, God, I don't know what it looks like, but I want you to use me. Would you show me what it looks like? And then be faithful as he begins to open those doors to step through and speak his name in those places. God's big enough to use even us. God's so gracious that he allows us to be part of what he's doing. And so would you ask him what it looks like? And then the last thing I want to say is, as we close here is just this. My bent is just to go straight to evangelism and discipleship because it's all over Acts. I think that's the way God's wired me. And it's like, yes, let's just go tell people and let's look for those opportunities. And he's doing it. But I also want to encourage you that when we talk about that God is so much bigger than anything we imagined, that touches every part of your life. So whatever you're struggling with, whether it's your kids or your relationships or your family or your job or depression or struggling with how this works or finances or whatever it would be, the God that is big enough to draw this Roman centurion and tell him to walk down the road is big enough to deal with whatever you're dealing with. That the box that you want to put them in and you go, this stinks right now and this is so hard and I don't see how this works. He wants to explode that one. I am at work and I am doing things and I want you to be encouraged with what I'm doing. And so, yes, there's a very clear push in this for evangelism and discipleship, but it's also our great God that loves us so much. He meets you right where you are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you are at work in all your creation to draw people from every tribe, tongue, and nation across the entire planet. That we are going to gather together as your people with people from all nations. And we will have you in common. That we will have unity and it will all be centered on how great you are and the ways that you love us. I pray that you would expand our vision of who you are and what you can do in the ways that you love us this day. I pray that we would see so clearly how much greater you are than any of the things that are sitting right in front of us today. That we would leave here encouraged by the glorious good news of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. We pray it in his precious name. Amen.